0: Hello, everybody, and welcome into episode number sixty-four of the Bible Reading Podcast. Today's big Bible question: What is Jesus's most important teaching on prayer? I've also got some great quotes on prayer for you, and a little bit of a leftover from yesterday: C.S. Lewis on the necessity of forgiveness. So, I guess I should start by slightly apologizing for the clickbaity title I used for this episode. So, there's a tension. In doing Christian things on social media. And I've been wrestling with it for years, you know, having begun podcasting way back in 2005. You want to have titles for things that, you know, are kind of eye-catching, kind of grabby and everything, but you don't really want to rope people in with false promises or flash or over-dramatizations. I suppose I could have titled today's podcast something like, Some Stuff on Prayer, But I guess that seems like it wouldn't be very inspiring, would it? I could have gone to the other extreme and totally made something up. The Pope and Southern Baptist President J.D. Greer both beg you to listen to this one awe-inspiring can't-miss podcast on how to become a warrior in prayer. But that would be kind of a lie, of course, because I don't really know the Pope, and I doubt he and J.D. would beg you to do much of anything in unison. So I settled on what is Jesus' most important teaching on prayer— I guess that perseverance in prayer may not actually be his most important teaching on prayer. He never actually tells us, hey, this is my most important teaching, like he does with the first and greatest commandment. But I do think it is really, really, really important, perseverance in prayer. If it's not his most important teaching on prayer, it's really close to his most important and emphasized teaching on prayer. And I'm sorry if my headline pulled you in with a false promise. I'll include my attorney's name and number at the end of this post if you would like to pursue legal action against me. In addition to a dramatic discussion about prayer from Luke chapter 18, we're also going to be reading Exodus 15, which contains the first, I think, worship song in the Bible and a really awesome instance of dancing in worship led by Moses' sister Miriam. Job 33 features young Elihu attempting to lay some wisdom down on Job and his friends, and 2 Corinthians 3 shares the powerful truth that Christians are living letters from God to the world. I love Paul's illustration in that. Oh, one important thing before we get started on prayer. Yesterday, I left off an amazing quote by C.S. Lewis on forgiveness, and I want to include it today because it's a good and challenging word for us. Believe it or not, forgiveness is a key to prayer. We're going to talk about it today, but this comes from episode number 63, which is yesterday, and this is what C.S. Lewis said. We say a great many things in church and out of church, too, without thinking of what we're saying. For instance, we say in the uh, creed, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. I had been saying it for several years before I asked myself why that was in the creed. At first, it seems hardly worth putting in. If one is a Christian, I thought, of course one believes in the forgiveness of sins. It goes without saying. But the people who compiled the creed apparently thought that this was a part of our belief which we needed to be reminded of every time we went to church. And I've begun to see that as far as I'm concerned, they were right. To believe in the forgiveness of sins is not nearly so easy as I thought. Real belief in it is the sort of thing that very easily slips away if we don't keep on polishing it up. We believe that God forgives us our sins but also that he will not do so unless we forgive other people their sins against us. There's no doubt about the second part of this statement. It's in the Lord's prayer, was emphatically stated by our Lord. If you don't forgive, you will not be forgiven. No part of his teaching is clearer and there are no exceptions to it. He doesn't say that we are to forgive other people's sins provided that they are not too frightful or provided that there are extenuating circumstances or anything of that sort. We are to forgive them all, however spiteful, however mean, however often they are repeated. If we don't, we shall be forgiven none of our own. So that's good stuff from C.S. Lewis and a good reminder on the importance of forgiveness. But today we're focusing more on prayer. Let me lead off with three fantastic quotes and finish with some more on prayer. Henry Martin says, My present deadness I attribute to want of sufficient time and tranquility for private devotion. Oh, that I might be a man of prayer. Charles Spurgeon says, Intercessory prayer is exceedingly prevalent. What wonders it has wrought. The word of God teems with its marvelous deeds. Believer, thou hast a mighty engine in thy hand. Use it well, use it constantly, use it with faith, and you will surely be a benefactor to your brethren. Finally, Jonathan Edwards, there's no way that Christians in a private capacity can do so much to promote the work of God and advance the kingdom of Christ as by prayer. And so I want to kind of give us four key teachings of Jesus on prayer, then read Luke 18 in his parable of the persistent widow, and then come back and talk a little bit more about prayer. So these are four really, really key important teachings of Jesus on prayer. Number one, never, ever, ever, ever with apologies to Winston Churchill, give up. Luke 18 verse 1 says, one day Jesus told his disciples a story to show that they should always pray and never give up. Also, I think about 1 Thessalonians five seventeen, where Paul says, pray constantly or pray without ceasing, if you prefer that version. Number two, be impudent. Luke 11.5, teaching them more about prayer, Jesus used this story. Suppose you went to a friend's house at midnight wanting to borrow three loaves of bread. You say to him, a friend of mine has arrived for a visit and I have nothing for him to eat. And suppose he calls out from his bedroom, hey, don't bother me. The door's locked for the night and my family and I are all in bed. I can't help you. But I tell you this. Though he won't do it for friendship's sake, if you keep knocking long enough, he will get up and give you whatever you need because of your shameless persistence. And so I tell you, Keep on asking, and you will receive what you ask for. Keep on seeking, and you will find. Keep on knocking, and the door will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives, everyone who seeks finds, and to everyone who knocks, the door will be opened. Did you catch that phrase there, shameless persistence? It's a translation of the word for impudence. Impudence is the quality of being impudent, which means characterized by offensive boldness, insolent, or impertinent. Some synonyms of impudent is audacious, bold, brassy, impertinent. In other words, Jesus teaches us to boldly pray and ask God like a guy knocking on his neighbor's door until that guy gets out of bed. That's an interesting teaching. We're going to be taught in a minute another aspect of that teaching in his parable of the persistent widow. Isaiah 62, 6 through 7 puts it like this. I've posted watchmen on your walls, O Jerusalem. They will never be silent day or night. You who call on the Lord, give yourselves no rest and give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes her the praise of the earth. My friends, we give up praying way too early, way too often. Jesus teaches us always pray, never give up. He teaches us to knock and keep on knocking, ask and keep on asking, seek and keep on seeking. Number three, key to prayer. Have faith. Don't doubt. Mark eleven twenty through 25. In the morning as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots that Jesus had cursed the day before. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. I tell you the truth. If anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will happen, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, Whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive him so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sin. And we see in this passage that there's not one but two keys to prayer. Number one, have faith doubt quenches prayer how do we overcome doubt well we pray with other people and we pray with the word of god faith comes by the word of god and george muller also gave some advice to people he suggested meditating on the word of god before we pray for the very reason that faith comes from the word final key to prayer according to jesus you might have caught it in mark 11 just a moment ago Forgive those you have something against. Yes, forgiveness is a key to prayer. If we don't forgive, our prayers will be hindered. Also consider Matthew 6, when Jesus is teaching his disciples how to pray. This is what he says. This is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, let your name be kept holy. Let your kingdom come. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us our daily bread today. Forgive us as we forgive others. Don't allow us to be tempted. Instead, rescue us from the evil one. If you forgive the failures of others, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you don't forgive others, your father will not forgive your failures. So you see that right in the middle of Jesus teaching the model prayer. He's also teaching forgiveness because forgiveness is a key to answered prayer. Well, let's go read Luke 18 and we'll come back and talk a little bit more about prayer. And in particular, we'll have some great quotes on praying with perseverance. Luke 18, verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible. Now Jesus told them a parable on the need for them to pray always and not give up. There was a judge in a certain town who didn't fear God or respect people, and a widow in that town kept coming to him saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he was unwilling, but later he said to himself, Even though I don't fear God or respect people, yet because this widow keeps pastoring me, I will give her justice so that she doesn't wear me out by her persistent coming. Then the Lord said, Listen to what the unjust judge says. Will not God grant justice to his elect who cry out to him day and night? Will he delay helping Him? them? I tell you that he will swiftly grant them justice. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and looked down on everyone else. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee was standing and praying like this about himself, "'God, I thank you that I am not like other people, greedy, unrighteous, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of everything I get.' But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even raise his eyes to heaven, but kept striking his chest and saying, God have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you, this one went down to his house justified rather than the other, because everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. People were bringing infants to him so he might touch them, but when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. Jesus, however, invited them, Let the little children come to me, and don't stop them, because the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I tell you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. A ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus asked him. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. I have kept all these from my youth, he said. When Jesus heard this, he told him, You still lack one thing. Sell all you have and distribute it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. After he heard this, he became extremely sad because he was very rich. Seeing that he became sad, Jesus said, How hard it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God, for it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard this asked, Who can be saved? He replied, What is impossible with man is possible with God. Then Peter said, Look, we've left what we had and followed you. So he said to them, Truly I tell you, there is no one who has left a house, wife, or brothers, or sisters, parents, or children because of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more at this time an eternal life in the age to come. Then he took the twelve aside and told them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. Everything that is written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished, for he will be handed over to the Gentiles, and he will be mocked, insulted, spit on. And after they flog him, they will kill him, and he will rise on the third day. They understood none of these things. The meaning of the saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. As he approached Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the road begging. Hearing a crowd passing by, he inquired what was happening. Jesus of Nazareth is passing by, they told him. So he called out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Then those in front of him told him to be quiet, but he kept crying out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and commanded that he be brought to him. When he came closer, he asked him, What do you want me to do for you? Lord, he said, I want to see. Receive your sight, Jesus told him. Your faith has saved you. Instantly he could see, and he began to follow him, glorifying God. All the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. So I want to encourage you to read and reread the parable of the persistent widow in Luke 18. I've read it many times, I've taught on it many times, and I forget it many times in my own life. I want to be a man of persistent prayer, but it seems like I need to be reminded of that teaching of Jesus and that truth about prayer over and over again. So make it to where you remind yourself of such a thing so that you and I both can be mighty in prayer. And so I want to sh- I want to share these quotes with you from a lot of spiritual giants from the past about persevering in prayer and so I'll read these and then we'll read some more scripture. E M Bounds says, our praying needs to be pressed and pursued with an energy that never tires, a persistency which will not be denied and a courage which never fails. John Wesley says, Have you any days of fasting and prayer? Storm the throne of grace and persevere therein, and mercy will come down. Andrew A. Bonner says, O brother, pray. In spite of Satan, pray. Spend hours in prayer. Rather neglect friends than not pray rather fast and lose breakfast, dinner, tea, and supper and sleep too than not pray. And we must not talk about prayer. We must pray in right earnest. The Lord is near. He comes softly while the virgin slumbers. Leonard Ravenhill quoted somebody that he just simply described as an old writer who said, much of our praying is like the boy who rings the doorbell, but then runs away before the door is open. George Mueller said, It is not enough to begin to pray, nor to pray aright, nor is it enough to continue for a time to pray, but we must patiently, believingly, continue in prayer until we obtain an answer. And further, we have not only to continue in prayer unto the end, but we have also to believe that God does hear us and will answer our prayers. Most frequently, we fail in not continuing in prayer until the blessing is obtained and in not expecting the blessing. Now, Mueller is one of my heroes of the faith. If there's ever been a more mighty man of prayer I don't know who it would be. Mueller was a guy who, as a pastor, never got a salary. He simply prayed that people would give. They gave and he lived off of that. As a man who founded the first orphanages in, in England, he never asked for a single shilling or pound of donation. He prayed and that God caused people to give. And those orphanages took care of over 10,000 kids with never asking for a donation. Why? Because Mueller was a mighty man of prayer and God answered his prayer. Leonard Ravenhill says, Elijah was a man skilled in the art of prayer who altered the course of nature, strangled the economy of a nation, prayed and fire fell, prayed and people fell, prayed and rain fell. We need rain, rain, rain. The churches are so parched and dry that seed cannot germinate. Our altars are dry with no hot tears of those repenting. Oh for an Elijah. When Israel cried for water, a man smote a rock and that flinty fortress became a womb out of which a life-giving stream was born. Is anything too hard for the Lord? God send us a man that can strike the rock. Martin Luther says, none can believe how powerful prayer is and what it is, it is able to affect. But those who have learned by experience, it is a great matter when an extreme need to take hold on prayer. Samuel Chadwick says, There is no power like that of prevailing prayer, of Abraham pleading for Sodom, Jacob wrestling in the stillness of the night, Moses standing in the breach, Hannah intoxicated with sorrow, David heartbroken with remorse and grief, Jesus in sweat and blood. Add to this list from the records of the church your personal observation and experience, and always there is cost of passion unto blood. Such prayer prevails. It turns ordinary mortals into men of power. It brings power. It brings fire. It brings rain. It brings life. It brings God. Amen. John Armat says the church has not yet touched the fringe of the possibilities of intercessory prayer. Her largest victories will be witnessed when individual Christians everywhere come to recognize their priesthood unto God and day by day give themselves unto prayer. John Flavel says. The devil is aware that one hour of close fellowship, hearty converse with God in prayer is able to pull down what he has been contriving and building for many a year. Finally, one more. I know this is number 11. Call it a bonus. Again, Samuel Chadwick. The one concern of the devil is to keep Christians from praying. He fears nothing from prayerless studies, prayerless work, and prayerless religion. He laughs at our toil, mocks at our wisdom, but trembles when we pray. I hope those are nourishing and challenging words for your soul to push you and me both into diligent, persevering prayer that always prays and never gives up. All right, let's get back into the word of God, starting with Exodus chapter 15, verse 1. Then Moses and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord. They said, I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. He's thrown the horse and its rider into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. He threw Pharaoh's chariots and his army into the sea. The elite of his officers were drowned in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They sank to the depths like a stone. Lord, your right hand is glorious in power. Lord, your right hand shattered the enemy. You overthrew your adversaries by your great majesty. You unleashed your burning wrath. It consumed them like stubble. "'The water heaped up at the blast from your nostrils. "'The current stood firm like a dam.' The watery depths conchealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire will be gratified at their expense. I will draw my sword and my hand will destroy them. But you blew with your breath and the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Lord, who is like you among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness, revered with praises, performing wonders?" You stretched out your right hand and the earth swallowed them. With your faithful love, you will lead the people you have redeemed. You will guide them to your holy dwelling with your strength. When the people's hear, they will shudder. Anguish will seize the inhabitants of Philistia. Then the chiefs of Edom will be terrified. Trembling will seize the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan will panic. Terror and dread will fall on them. They will be as still as a stone because of your powerful arm. Until your people pass by, Lord, until the people whom you purchased pass by, you will bring them in and plant them on the mountain of your possession. Lord, you have prepared the place for your dwelling. Lord, your hands have established the sanctuary. The Lord will reign forever and ever. When Pharaoh's horses with his chariots and horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought the water of the sea back over them. But the Israelites walked through the sea on dry ground. Then the prophetess Miriam, Aaron's sister, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women came out following her with tambourines and dancing. Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. He has thrown the horse and its rider into the sea." Then Moses led Israel on from the Red Sea, and they went out to the wilderness of Shur. They journeyed for three days in the wilderness without finding water. They came to Marah, but they could not drink the water at Marah because it was bitter. That's why it was named Marah. The people grumbled to Moses, What are we going to drink? So he cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree. When he threw it into the water, the water became drinkable. The Lord made a statute and ordinance for them at Marah, and he tested them there. He said, If you will carefully obey the Lord your God, do what is right in his sight, pay attention to his commands, and keep all his statutes, I will not inflict any illnesses on you that I inflicted on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. They came to Elim, where there were twelve springs and seventy date palms, and they camped there by the water. Job chapter 33 verse 1. But now, Job, pay attention to my speech and listen to all my words. I am going to open my mouth. My tongue will form words on my palate. My words come from my upright heart and my lips speak with sincerity what they know. The Spirit of God has made me and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. Refute me if you can. Prepare your case against me. Take your stand. I am just like you before God. I was also pinched off from a piece of clay. Fear of me should not terrify you, no pressure from me should weigh you down. Surely you have spoken in my hearing, and I have heard these words. I am pure without transgression, I am clean and have no iniquity. But he finds reason to oppose me, he regards me as his enemy. He puts my feet in the stocks, he stands watch over all my paths. But I tell you that you are wrong in this matter, since God is greater than man. Why do you take him to court for not answering anything a person asks? For God speaks time and again, but a person may not notice it. In a dream, a vision in the night, when deep sleep comes over people, as they slumber in their beds, he uncovers their ears and terrifies them with warnings. In order to turn a person from his actions and suppress the pride of a person, God spares his soul from the pit, his life from crossing the river of death. A person may be disciplined on his bed with pain and constant distress in his bones so that he detests bread and his soul despises his favorite food. His flesh wastes away to nothing and his unseen bones stick out. He draws near to the pit and his life to the executioners. If there is an angel on his side, one mediator out of a thousand to tell a person what is right for him and... To be gracious to him and say, spare him from going down to the pit, I've found a ransom. Then his flesh will be healthier than in his youth, and he will return to the days of his youthful vigor. He will pray to God, and God will delight in him. That person will see his face with a shout of joy, and God will restore his righteousness to him. He will look at men and say, I have sinned and perverted what was right, yet I did not get what I deserved. He redeemed my soul from going down to the pit, and I will continue to see the light. God certainly does all these things two or three times to a person in order to turn him back from the pit, so he may shine with the light of life. Pay attention, Job, and listen to me. Be quiet, and I will speak. But if you have something to say, answer me. Speak, for I would like to justify you. If not, then listen to me. Be quiet, and I will teach you wisdom. 2 Corinthians 3 verse 1 Are we beginning to commend ourselves again, or do we need, like some, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter written on our hearts, known and read by everyone. You show that you are Christ's letter, delivered by us, not written with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence we have through Christ before God. It is not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything is coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God. He has made us competent to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now, if the ministry that brought death chiseled in letters on stones came with glory so that the Israelites were not able to gaze steadily at Moses' face because of its glory which was set aside? How will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? For if the ministry that brought condemnation had glory, the ministry that brings righteousness overflows with even more glory. In fact, what had been glorious is not glorious now by comparison because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was set aside was glorious, what endures will even be more glorious. Since then, we have such a hope we act with great boldness. We are not like Moses who used to put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from gazing steadily until the end of the glory of what was being set aside. But their minds were hardened. For to this day at the reading of the old covenant, the same veil remains. It's not lifted because it's set aside only in Christ. Yet still today, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. We all, with unveiled faces, are looking as in a mirror at the glory of the Lord and are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. This is from the Lord, who is the Spirit. And my friends, may we also be undergoing that process of transformation as we look at the Lord and as the word of God permeates and transforms us. God bless you and Godspeed.